Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our guest today is Paul Gutenberg. I should say Dr. Paul Gutenberg, professor of history at Stony Brook University in New York. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The book that we're going to be talking about today that Paul wrote is called Andean Cocaine. It is undoubtedly a magnum opus. In fact, my first question to you, Paul, is how long was this book in the making? That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> a little bit too long for my taste, to tell you the truth. I think I was working on it approximately a decade, uh, including maybe half of that time just doing basic research for it and the rest of the time trying to make sense of that research and writing it up. Ten years. It looks like it could have taken ten years. This is one of, if not the, most well-documented books on various kinds of substances that we call drugs that I've come across. Um, let's begin with a history of coca and cocaine. And by the way, at, before we actually begin with the historical aspect, tell us about the difference between coca and cocaine, and then let's go into the history pre-1860. Coca or coca leaf is the product of a bush that's native to the Andean region or really to the subtropical uh, Amazon Andes region of South America. And uh, it's been cultivated by human beings for at least 5,000, 6,000 years and became very much a part of indigenous cultures of the Andes, including the, the Incas by the 14th century. And to this day is used by um, surviving indigenous peoples, especially in the southern Andes of, of Peru. Um, and basically, the coca leaf contains a great number of alkaloids. And one of those alkaloids has become quite famous over the past century and a half, and that is the alkaloid cocaine, which is one of many, many chemical substances that are inside the, the coca leaf. Um, Maybe I should explain a little bit about the preponderance of, of drugs that come from semi-tropical areas like this. A lot of plants from uh, tropical and semi-tropical parts of the world contain chemicals that are called alkaloids, which is actually a technical name for um, a... Um, uh, you know, kind of a, I, I, I won't go deep into the chemistry of it, but the, it, it, it seems that these plants develop these alkaloids as a form of natural insecticide. It's one of the prevailing theories so that bugs, which are much more predominant in the tropics, will not be eating these plants 100% of the time. But many of these alkaloids actually have as a byproduct a mind-altering capacity. I mean, one of the most famous alkaloids that comes from another semi-tropical plant is caffeine um, from the coffee plant. In any case, um, the coca leaf has been used for thousands of years for various kinds of ritual and medicinal um, and community types of uses in the Andes. It's masticated. It's a misnomer to say that it's chewed. It's really... Um, but it's used with a lime-like substance in order 
uh, scientists believe to actually accentuate some of the alkaloids, including the cocaine that's in um, the leaf, so that there is a feeling, it is a stimulant, there is a feeling of energy that comes with the use of, of coca leaf. But coca leaf has been long a marker that is integral to Andean indigenous communities. Cocaine, on the other hand, is if you were to isolate this one chemical um, and concentrate it, it's kind of taking it out of its natural and out of its social context within the coca leaf. So uh, cocaine was discovered by Western scientists, German alkaloidal chemists in the 19th century started a, a list of chemicals that they were seeking, uh, their kind of wish list of things. And the first one was actually from opium, opium long used, became uh, discovered morphine as a central element. And the second one was caffeine from coffee. And the third one of great importance was cocaine, which was isolated in by German university team uh, in uh, about 1860s. There's various origin stories as to, um, but it was something they were looking for because of the storied properties, the oral histories that went along with coca leaf by the 19th century. So if we were to give the stimulant value of masticating the coca leaf, the number one, where would you place cocaine so people have a kind of relative comparison? Uh, well, I I don't know whether I could personally <laughs> make that type of comparison, but uh, there's been certain analogies ha that have been made. I'm trying to remember exactly the anthropologist who said, um, made this in the 70s, it began to be quite, in the 1970s, became quite uh, common to try to make these comparisons between coca leaf as an indigenous experience and cocaine as a recreational experience. And, um, you know, we're talking about hundreds of times more powerful impact okay. than uh, the chewing of coca leaf. Okay. Someone described it as the difference between traveling over the Andes in a mule uh, or an alpaca and flying in a supersonic jet. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, that tells me something because I've experienced cocaine and I've experienced uh, Peruvian uh, origin cocaine, uh, but I've never uh, masticated the leaves. So if I'm trying to, to figure out, you know, what the leaves are like based on what you just said, the leaves are very, very light in stimulant value. The, uh, yeah, it would be comparable to taking tea in some sense. Uh -huh. so, or or um, a couple of cups of coffee, perhaps. Or Yeah, the, it's a comparable effect, but it's not an effect from caffeine. Yes. It has a constricting effect uh, on uh, the blood system. Um, you know, it has certain predictable physiological effects, okay. but it's... Um, it's no stronger than a cup of coffee. All right. So now take us into the history. Where Take us into the Andes in Peru and tell us what happened down there. <laughs> uh, well, starting in the middle of the 19th century, yes. say? Or, yes, okay. middle of well, the 19th century. If, That's a good start. Okay. One of, one of the objects of... I was actually, to give you a little autobiographical experience, I began my career as a Peruvian history specialist. So I approached the history of cocaine both with 
that background and that knowledge of Peru, the country, and Peru and its commodities, but also with this idea of making it, showing all the global connections that the history of cocaine was going to have and necessarily draw on. So it's both a, a local history of this nation in the Andes where cocaine seems to come back and forth from and its global connections to Europe and Asia and the United States and elsewhere. Um, so in the 19th century, in the middle of the 19th century, Peru was a, a pretty um, unstable and divided country. Um, and it was dominated by a European elite on the coast in Lima. And the rest of the country tended to live in the high Andes mountains and in indigenous villages or um, mestizo villages. And there was a, a good number of disconnects between the two. But during the 19th century, there was a growing sense of Peruvian nationalism. And one of the interesting findings of the book is that in its ascending stage in a place like Peru, there was a great deal of kind of nationalism, especially scientific nationalism, that accrued to um, the development of cocaine. Um, in the early part of the 19th century, Peruvian sort of lettered elites began to experiment with national goods, and cocaine wasn't the only one, or coca wasn't the only one, and they began to put a more positive valence on it because they were trying to define their place as a nation, but also looking for profitable exports, desperately looking for profitable exports in some way or another, and it was a great age of exports from Latin America. Um, so you see this whole litany, and I, I tried to find the genealogy of Peruvian um, scientists and humanists who began to look at coca and do research on coca in a more scientific light. And um, by the 1880s, this movement in Peru, this you know small but important scientific movement, culminates in the career of a character um, whose name was Alfredo Bignon. And Bignon was a pharmacist but he had an insatiable kind of scientific curiosity and uh, became very, very interested in coca and cocaine especially. And to put this in context, people might actually be familiar with the story of Sigmund Freud because Sigmund Freud begins his career in exactly the same years in Vienna by doing these experiments, self-experiments and ruminations and research in the U.S. Surgeon General's list, uh, which is sometimes called his cocaine phase or sometimes published as the cocaine paper, seven important essays that Freud wrote. And they actually were considered important at that time on this new product, this new medicinal product that had been discovered 20, 25 years earlier, cocaine, which had as yet no medicinal uses. But Freud was toying with these ideas. Ultimately, he would be frustrated. It would be his colleague, Kohler, um, who discovers the first major use of cocaine, which is as an aesthetic, anesthetic for um, eye surgery. And then the, the boom of medicinal cocaine would take off starting in Europe at this time. Anyway, going back to Lima, here's this guy, a um, French-born Peruvian naturalized pharmacist who's just tinkering in a pharmacy um, and corresponding with people around the world about cocaine. 
and he does even more experiments with the drug than Sigmund Freud did. Some of them are seem eminently scientific from our perspective, other ones a little amateurish. But the one that was going to have a lasting impact is that he came up with a formula to make cocaine very simply and very economically using raw materials that were around in a place like Peru um, so that coca leaf could be processed to be exported as cocaine to Europe and the United States and other burgeoning markets. And this is right in the mid 1880s, 1886, 1887, when this medicinal boom for the drug is taking off. And he called this product, it was a sulfates of cocaine. You used kerosene basically to begin the process of leaching the, the leaves, pulverizing and leaching the leaves of cocaine. It was like 60 to 80% pure cocaine, what we would call cocaine is cocaine hydrochloride. Um, but it made it eminently exportable because it was this kind of cake, this smelly cake that could be exported to the main pharmaceutical firms. For example, Merck of Darmstadt in Germany, which was the leading cocaine manufacturer in the world in the late 19th century. In fact, Merck, which obviously still exists today and has become many, many um, national and international works in the meantime. So there was already um, enough med medical demand for cocaine yes. that Merck wanted it. And what yes. was the ratio of pounds of leaf to pounds of this cocaine cake, roughly? Well, usually it's estimated that it's what would be about 160 to one. Oh my word. Okay. One. Yeah. So instead of so it's much more economical. So instead of uh, of uh, shipping 180 pounds of something, you can ship one pound of something. I also read in your book that might be interesting uh, to people who are uh, with us today is that when you transport the leaves, uh, if there's a time lag with how long it takes to get delivery, uh, they lose their potency. That's right. They can rot. And it was very, um, that's one of the reasons why for 300 years, coca leaf was actually ignored as a stimulant in the West because it was thought to be inert. It was thought to be a mythology because the coca, the few coca leaves that were sent to European scientists in the 16th and 17th and 18th century were invariably bad. Uh -huh. um, and it wasn't until the 19th century that packing got better. And But really it was much easier and more efficient to send it in this sure. condensed form. Uh -huh. Except there is going to be an exception later on, which we can talk about, which is the kind of syrup trade, um, a tincture trade to be exact. Because in some medical usage, in, especially in France, also in Britain in the 19th century, and in the United States among kind of natural cure movements in the United States or what we would... Um, uh, what we would call today natural medicine, which has so many precedents in the United States, herbal medicine, there was a, a preference to using tinctures or raw materials over chemical compounds or synthesized chemical compounds. Um, and this in part was going to lead to another line in this story, which is the development of Coca-Cola. Yes, that's an important one, which we'll get to.
okay, so it's in the 1880s. Big Non has figured out how to take 180 pounds of leaf and produce 100 pounds of 60 to 80% pure cocaine. And he starts shipping and Merck in Europe picks it up and some of the chemical companies in the United States pick it up. And Freud starts experimenting. By the way, Freud sent some of it to his fiancée, Minna Bernays, uh, because she was uh, suffering from some depression. And Freud thought that was going to you know, help her out until he found out later on what he did find out about other aspects of cocaine. Okay, what happens next? Well, what happens next, or at least the way in which I construct the, the narrative in the book, is that there's a... Uh, a a kind of short-lived boom of cocaine in the late 19th century. And this has been documented before, usually with the perspective of as an episode in the history of medicine gone awry. That is this idea that um, there was a, it became a fad um, that doctors and other, say, medical hucksters, uh, patent medicine sellers, um, adopted cocaine too quickly and adopted it for too many things. This idea has actually been criticized recently by some historians of medicine, especially Joseph Spillane at the University of Florida, who studied it pretty well in the United States. And he observes that, um, very serious academic book, he observes that the pharmaceutical firms themselves were actually kind of prudent in how they experimented with the drug. And when they realized its dangers, which were Pretty soon on, they began to um, restrict their own um, usage and advertisement um, of the drug, especially the so-called ethical firms, which, by the way, doesn't have anything to do with ethics, but just describes the wholesaling function <laughs> of the drug firm, uh, such as Park Davis in uh, Detroit was a big coca cocaine. Wasn't it also so, about that time, Paul, that uh, Halstead, the founder of Johns Hopkins, got involved with cocaine, I think, on a personal level, as I remember. Yeah, there's been a great deal written about that. These episodes where uh, people got a little bit too personally involved, we might say addicted today mm -hmm. with the drug. And Halstead's saga, there have been many. He was one of the most important pioneering surgeons in the United States. To put that into context, you actually have to think about the role that cocaine played it really revolutionized the practice of surgery. Until cocaine's anesthetic properties and applicability was discovered um, in the uh, middle of the 1880s, um, there was no reliable anesthetic, at least for local anesthetic, in use in the world. So surgery was an, an almost torturous medieval um, uh, procedure of any kind, much less um, things like delicate surgeries, like eye surgeries or, or uh, something of that effect. So cocaine gave Western medicine a tool which to really explore and move into the modernization of surgery. Within a decade, its use had more or less been uh, made obsolete by better anesthetics that came onto line, and especially anesthetics that did not have um, the potential ill side effects that cocaine was discovered to have had by the early 1890s. Um, some of these are, by the way, effects that we still associate with the drug today. And some of the early um, uh, cautionary 
literature on cocaine. For example, I found this wonderful symposium of the New York Academy of Medicine in 1888 about the dangers of the use of cocaine would sound like, you know, a, a, um, uh, an anti-drug <laughs> commercial from the 1980s. Well, ac- actually, uh, I was involved for a 10-year period in treatment of cocaine addicts and started a, a program called Coke Enders Alcohol and Drug Program that became an international program. And I sort of raised an eyebrow about the concerns regarding using it for surgery because, yes, there are difficulties and side effects that come with consistent use, but a one-time use in surgery, I don't know why they had trouble with that. Well, for the most part, they did not. But there were some cases, for example, this was repeated later in the in very famous uh, example of Len Bias, uh, the basketball player from the University of oh, Who died. Um, exactly. There's a very, I've forgotten the technical name for it, but there's Respir- a very rare effect. Well, respiratory arrest and heart failure combined. But that is typically... Yeah from a very large dose, not the kind that a surgeon would use as anesthesia. Yeah, but it was observed in the late 19th century. It was observed among patients. Very rare, but it was observed nonetheless. But there were were fears about habituation, as it was called. People were using it. The real problem wasn't medicine. Let's put this back into perspective. uh, The real problem was not medicine. For medicine, cocaine was a modernizing drug, as it was for these Peruvian producers. Um, the real problem was the market, and the market for drugs in the United States was unregulated. This was the patent medicine era, and as the price of cocaine plummeted in the late 19th century, it began to be found in more and more what are usually called nostrums or patent medicines, that is, over-the-counter medicines, no regulation whatsoever. No, there was no FDA. In fact, the FDA came out of of this experience of of adulterated and um, harmful, you know, kind of drug concoctions. You know, sort of fabricated drug concoctions in the late nineteenth century. So, the popular markets for these things began to grow. Um, quite rigorously, particularly because the price of cocaine, it went from being an exotic, high-priced scientific rarity that was used by, you know, really the elite scientists at research universities and European universities, to being something that was available basically on the street. And by 1900, there were actual recreational, we would call them, cocaine scenes in many, many parts of the United States and other parts of the world. It really spread quite rapidly and quite globally. Now let's take and a there, let's take a sidebar here, Paul, uh, and tell mm-hmm. us about Van Mariani. Well, that's more than just a sidebar because um, it's one of the most important commodities of the 19th century in terms of how commodities are marketed. But it also led, it has its own pathway towards the popularization of cocaine. That's why I brought it in right now. Angelo Mariani was a a fairly prestigious French, originally Corsican pharmacist with a great deal of entrepreneurial energy um, who invented in 1862, just two years after cocaine is discovered to actually be a thing, a new product that he would begin to market to upper-class Europeans, basically, in the late 19th century, and that was Vin Mariani. And what it was is he took a 
a red wine, a Bordeaux wine, and mixed coca leaf extract into that from the Andes. Not cocaine, but a kind of tincture of, of, of coca leaf. I mean, he would soak coca leaves. He had various methods. There's been a great deal uh, found about him recently. And this product was very successful. It was successful because, in part, the way that it was marketed, it was marketed as a kind of a, a wonderful, um, life-enhancing drink, Elan Vital, the idea that it could awaken you, and it had kind of sexual properties to it, and aesthetic, and it was associated with this grandiose civilization in the romantic eyes of the French, the Incas. And so the advertising and the visuals are really quite famous for the 19th century of this product, um, Vin Mariani. So it became quite well known in elite circles in Europe and England and began to spread to the United States quite quickly in the, by the early 1880s as well. Now, one of the reasons for the spread of Vin Mariani to the United States, and by the way, like many drugs, there are, there are positive drug interactions, you know. So coca leaf mixed properly with alcohol will be actually much stronger. It will have a stronger impact. So in some ways, the consumers of Vin Mariani were experiencing much more of a cocaine recreational experience than a coca experience, Um but a lot of it had to do with this aura that uh, Mariani set around the product, that the product was a health product, that the product was, you know, would enhance your virility, would enhance your energy. So it was the first of these really great, you know, we still have these products today. In fact, we're going through a new boom. They're called energy drinks, except the energy drinks that we have tend to be crude things you pick up at the 7-Eleven, you know, and just gulp down rather than something elegant and classy like Vin Mariani. That's how that was marketed. Anyway, it spread to the United States. And one of the reasons for the growing popularity of, of um, Vin Mariani in the United States it was the importance of a new theory about kind of the constitution of the American uh, body, we might say, and that's a condition that's called neurasthenia. I don't know if you've ever come across neurasthenia. Neurasthenia was neurasthenia was Freud's word for what we might now call somewhere between mild and moderately mild depression. It was a lack of energy. It was a lack of elan vital. It was a kind of, you know, very slow moving. And uh, Freud thought it affected females much more than males as well. You 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 are exactly getting what the it was called. Um, uh, what was it called? Uh, there's a famous book written by an academic about it called American Neurasthenia. But basically, in 1880, an important um, popular um, uh, what we would call a neurologist today, Beard, wrote a book called American Nervousness. And his book was very popular among doctors and medical men of all kind. And he, he basically uh, proposed that Americans were suffering a kind of a, a mass epidemic of 
neurasthenia, particularly our women. Modernity was wearing them out. People had low energy. Living in cities was um, really sapping our elan vital. And one of the best uh, products he proposed for countering this was the stimulant properties of coca, coca leaf, because there actually was a kind of growing American movement in favor of coca leaf in the 19th century as well, um, though that really needs much more kind of primary research as to how that came about and you know what the appeal of that was. But Beard's book was very important, and the product that was there in the market that could be taken for neurasthenia was Vin Mariani. And Vin Mariani sales began to take off. Um, uh, Mariani set up a factory in lower Manhattan. Um, at some point, I found the address of this. You know, like, and so they're, they, they kind of separated out from the European firm. Um, and it was really, you know, gaining ground in the United States in the mid-1880s. Um, as this medicinal product, semi-medicinal product, you know, would cross the boundaries, um, to um, enhance or relax the nerves. Shall shall we come back now to Peru? Okay, sure. I was. I thought you might ask me what's the relationship between Vin Mariani and Coca Cola. No, I purposely but, didn't because we you, you, we're going to get to Coca Cola <laughs> later when we get into Americanization okay. and American colonialization of the world. Okay. All right. So uh, where we were in Peru is that there was a boom in Peru of growing coca leaf. Coca leaf had only been grown in the colonial period in the early 19th century on a small scale in the eastern escarpment of the Andes in this series of valleys. And there's a parallel and even stronger coca culture that existed in what is today called Bolivia, in the Yungas regions of Bolivia, which are these semi-tropical and tropical valleys that go down from the Altiplano. Coca use was actually much more intensive and much more um, accepted within the entire society of Bolivia by the late 19th century than it was in the case of Peru. Now, in the case of Peru, it becomes bifurcated. You have traditional use by indigenous peoples, mostly looked down upon, a kind of a vice like drinking, something that probably degenerated the race. Um, these feelings by westernized elites would actually intensify during the 20th century until the point it reached a climax in the 1930s and 1940s and maybe 1950s where they thought that it was an actual drug addiction of their indigenous populations which is a very very um um, biased way, <laughs> to say the least, of looking at the use of coca by indigenous people, of which there is no scientific evidence whatsoever. The evidence was so slanted uh, and so jerry-picked to support this kind of racial, ethnocentric theory. Um, anyway, going back to the late 19th century, um, it bifurcates between this traditional market of just leaves that are dried and sold to indigenous people, and an export market that is for the cocaine industry and for, in the north of Peru, what is going to become the Coca-Cola industry. And the main valley where this happens is the Huayaga Valley. There are other places where coca is grown, but the main commercial epicenter in the late 19th century is the Huayaga 
Valley of Peru. And if that rings a bell to anybody, maybe to somebody of your age, um, uh, it's because that same area became the epicenter of kind of the cocaine, illicit cocaine wars by the late um, 19, by the 1980s, let's say. That was the center. The way Colombia is today, that was the center of the development of cocaine and cocaine conflict. But in the late 19th century, it was an entrepreneurial movement. So there were about um, a dozen to 20 Peruvian entrepreneurs who set up small cocaine factories using mostly local materials and local technology that would bring in the leaf that was being grown on you know, smallish plantations through this Amazon Andes region pulverize it and make it into this coca base, um, which sometimes, uh, what, well, what would now be called pasta basica de cocaina or basic cocaine paste, which is still the method for making cocaine in the illicit trade of the Andes today. That is pulverizing it, mixing it with kerosene, um, putting it through several simple stages until you come up with this kind of cake. The same thing that was invented by Big Non in Lima 20 years before. But by the 1890s, Peru was, was having a small-scale boom in the production of cocaine. And they were shipping it mainly to German pharmaceutical firms, in which the leading one was Merck, and to American pharmaceutical firms, a few British, a few Japanese, a few um, French firms here and there. Uh, but it was mainly a German and American phenomena of importing the cocaine and making it into and marketing it as medicinal grade cocaine, mainly one would think for the surgical or dental um, use market um, because dentistry became very quickly one of the major areas for the use of cocaine. So it was a fairly profitable industry. It wasn't very high tech. Um, but it was kind of homemade and had this allure in Peru of being a modern new industry that was based on a national good of ours, the coca leaf, and a, a national entrepreneurial move, which was something that Peruvians really didn't have much of during this period. So they really, they validated it. It was seen as a positive thing. So here's the paradox that kind of goes through this era of the book. Um, from the 1880s through the 1920s, as the prestige of cocaine rises, the prestige of coca leaf is falling because coca leaf doesn't have that scientific allure. It's more folkloric. It's more associated with inferiorized peoples or inferiorized races, as they would have been called at that time, and was seen to have deleterious effects, whereas cocaine was just a profitable medicinal modern export product. So um, Peru ends up by 1905, 1906, becoming by far, well, really the world's monopoly producer of this marvelous new uh, medical commodity, cocaine. And then comes the next phase. Yeah. The next phase is a phase, um, maybe I'll step back and tell you how the whole book is organized. I, I came my own roots were somebody who was very interested in commodity studies, which is now a big 
deal. You know, all these books about commodities, but there are academics who've been studying commodities for a long time and theorizing as to what makes a commodity and how they change and how they're fluid, their anthropology, their sociology. And the book was constructed around an idea of three phases in the development of global cocaine. First, it's rise as a legitimate modern commodity in the 19th century. Basically, the things I just described to you. Right. How it becomes modernized in Peru and how it gets this aura of scientific acceptability and markets in the rest of the world. The second phase, which we could talk about a little bit now, is this real decline as a commodity. Decline both in the profit sense of the term, but also decline in its legitimacy. More and more questioning comes out about cocaine. Is it good? Is it bad? Should it be restricted? Um, is it dangerous? Um, are there more superior um, um, medicines to cocaine? And then the third phase, and probably the one that would be of most interest to um, uh, readers, is the birth of of an illicit commodity. Yeah. And that happens mainly in my view um, and from my research in the 20 years after World War II, where cocaine goes from being basically a delegitimized and backward commodity because of its decline over the past 40 years to one that has a new dynamism, but it's a dynamism that is based on the black market and the growing um, culture of illicit recreational use, particularly in the United States and later the rest of the world. We need to talk about phase two a little bit before we go into that yeah. exciting phase three, because it was <laughs> in phase two that uh, the, the decline uh, of cocaine, yeah. that the United States really led the world into this. Um, that, that's true. It, it, right. Into the idea of restricting and banning cocaine is an idea that has been profoundly led by the United States over history um, and has a curious- I, I, so Thank you. I, I really appreciated the way you, you stated it in the book at one point. It was sort of a throwaway line, but to me it was an extremely important line where you say where the United States decided to regulate what people took into their bodies. It was a larger movement during the so-called progressive era and we're talking about a movement that was aligned also with the creation of the FDA, the FDA acts and, and 1904 and 1906, with, uh, which was to regulate, um, you know, these large um, non-medicinal or medicinal markets of popular uh, goods. It goes with alcohol prohibition during the period. But it also goes with this newfangled idea, which begins around the same time and is codified in 1914 in the Harrison Acts of restricting and outlawing certain drugs. And at first, the major drug that was on the agenda to be outlawed in the United States or strictly regulated were the opiates. Um, it's a long background story to itself, but because of our involvement in the Philippines and because of Chinese immigration um, to the United States, uh, opiates also began to have a, a kind of a negative connotation by um, the early part of the 20th century, and an international movement was growing to restrict the sale 
and use of opiates and morphine and its derivatives like heroin, which had uh, emerged in the 1890s. As you know, there's a lot of theorizing about the opiates being number one on the hit list, have, being racially motivated, just as this a similar that you'll talk about with the, the racial yeah, motive. Usually there's, there's, I'm not sure that explains every aspect of these movements because they were also part of the construction of a modern state and state regulatory apparatus in the United States. But, mm -hmm. um, but there's always a, a stigma group that's involved. In the case of opiates, it was um, the Chinese. In the case of cannabis later, and this story has also been deeply misconstrued, it was Mexican-Americans and Mexicans. That was in the 1930s and 1940s when cannabis was actually um, outlawed much later than um, opiates and, and cocaine. In the case of cocaine, um, it may be surprising to many people, but uh, because it seems to rebound again in history, but it was uh, African Americans. Yes. Um, and the story has been told many times, and I, I have to emphasize that it should be contextualized in certain ways. It needs to be nuanced in certain ways, but it was certainly a scapegoat because in the South, um, cocaine culture was actually spreading. And there probably was a good deal of African-American cocaine use and cocaine was associated with the idea of, um, this was the beginnings of Jim Crow. I mean, this was the really the, the um, most intensive era of racialization in uh, modern US history. It was associated with interracial uh, sexuality. It was associated with prostitutes and pimps. It was associated with a lot of, say, deviance, and it had a lot of racialization. So the black man using cocaine was an extremely frightening figure um, because he could not be controlled. Um, it, it sounds familiar because these same uh, tropes were somehow revived during the crack epidemic in, That's right. in the in the late 1980s uh, and seemed to have uh, again dire consequences for African American communities and for legislation in the United States. Really long term consequences that we're just really recovering from. Um, but so it was goaded along by a great deal of racial propaganda in the South. Um, that said, it, again, it, the restriction of cocaine was probably inevitable in some sense or another. Um, just the form that it took in the United States became kind of extreme, I would say. Now, at the now, same time, while cocaine is going into this 30 to 35 or 40 year decline before mm -hmm. phase three, which is the illicit trade, which the explosion during the decline period, it was early mm -hmm. in that, or even right before the decline, decline that Pemberton started the Coca Cola Company, wasn't it? Maybe this is a yes, time to to bring that into play. Right? Is it now? I mean, it's no secret that Coca Cola. I mean, Coca Cola has Coca in its name, even though the company still remains. Um, focused on a kind of a amnesia about the, the, the drug origins of its concoction, of its so-called secret formula. I don't think the formula is considered secret anymore. It's been exposed so many times that um, uh, in the past 20 or 30 years that you know, there's no longer any secret about it. But um, Coca-Cola um, 
came out of an interesting conjuncture in the late 19th century, there were various health crazes. One of them was around the soda fountain, you know, seltzer water or soda water, as you might call it out west, um, was considered to be a health drink. And so pharmacists had it in their pharmacy still. Can you remember those days? Yes. You would walk into a pharmacy and there would be a counter. And that goes back to the late 19th century. And there were a lot of herbal medicines that were brought to, you know, caffeine in cola nut, um, coca leaf was brought in, all kinds of global um, sassafras, all kinds of Native American concoctions were brought into these kind of naturalist pharmacies in the United States. And they were like a quick or, you know, it's like what we would call today over-the-counter medicines, except, you know, they were enjoyable to take um, in one form or another, or most of them were, some of them were. And the ones that had cocaine or coca in them, of course, had an important effect. They made you feel good. Uh, <laughs> so, so that's almost by definition, a, a similarly with the opiate ones, probably made you feel really good. Yeah. Maybe drowsy, but good. Yeah, like the laudanum. The coca ones made you, f- yeah. Laudanum was one of the biggest products of the 19th century, starting in Europe and then in the United States. Um, the, and so, the origin story of um, of Coca-Cola, without repeating too much, is that a Civil War veteran and pharmacist, um, um, Pembleton, in Atlanta, Georgia, um, develops this new concoction in 1886 or so um, by copying, first of all, he copied Vin Mariani, and he just called it Peruvian wine, um, cola. Um, but when Georgia, um, kind of like today, you have these like um, uh, movements to outlaw things in the South. Uh, <laughs> so they had a local movement to outlaw. Uh, Georgia went dry in the 1880s. So Pemberton had to quickly come up with an alternative to Vin Mariani. He couldn't just copy it. It was a very bad copy in any case. And so he comes up with this this formula that has 7x ingredients in it, but no longer alcohol. So it has a lot of caffeine from cola nuts. It has cocaine from uh, coca leaf. It has a lot of sugar. It was kind of a speedball and it had a really good taste as well. And it began very quickly as a popular regional Southern um, cola, as it was called. Um, And um, by 1900, because of, it was no longer an it had been the, the business side of this has been written about many times because they had they also like Vin Mariani had a very innovative the franchising and bottling and um, the way in which it spread in the United States was quite innovative in itself. Um, but by 1900, it was a national drink with a great popularity. It did face a problem though, which was this anti-drug movement that we were just talking about a few. Um, minutes ago. So in the early years of the 20th century, there was a lot of propaganda against Coca-Cola, that it was a drug, that it was addicting, that it was dangerous, that it was in, you know, part of this is that it's, um, you know, enhancing the uppityness of of Southern blacks and whatnot. So in 1903, the Coca-Cola company innovates Coca-Cola by um, and I found these connections that in my research that were quite remarkable. 
um, in the end. I, I don't know if you want to go that deep into the details of it, but um, they brought up a German chemist, or they didn't bring him up, but they connected to a German chemist who had been in Peru on a building his own cocaine or cocoa-related um, alkaloid factory. They found this chemist named Schaefer in New Jersey, whose job it was was to develop a form of coca syrup that had no cocaine in it. They took the cocaine out. So it's a little bit like the development of decaffeinated beverages in the when they became popular in the 1960s and 1970s when you know public opinion and medical opinion was well we're consuming much too much caffeine we need to have decaffeinated x decaffeinated y um they made a decoconized uh, coca-cola without advertising it that way they just said um the product is no longer in fact what they did is they suggested the product no longer contained coca leaf at all when in fact it contained and still contains to this day um, the essence of coca leaf. It's just that coca leaf has a lot of flavorings and a lot of other alkaloids that may or may not have, you know, medicinal properties. You know, you know this whole wise tale. Remember when your your mother would say, you know, you had a cough or you had a stomach ache. They would say, drink Coca Cola syrup. You could, if you can remember back that far, it was routinely given for its medicinal properties because coca leaf still had this kind of aura um, to it um, from uh, the early 20th century. Anyway, Coca-Cola went on to become an even broader commodity. It did face one last hurdle, which has been also written about by many other things, which was the crusade by um, Wiley, the uh, chief chemist of the FDA, and a very important figure in the progressive movement in the United States. And he was really out to destroy Coca-Cola because he thought it was the, a dangerous, dangerous product. And he brought a number of federal lawsuits against Coca-Cola on the basis of fraud, which was a characteristic of this period is that you'd say, well, it's got chemicals in it that um, are not supposed to be there or it makes claims that are not supposed to be there. And um, the first... There were two of these large-scale suits against Coca-Cola, um, which the FDA ultimately lost in its early years. And they were held in the South, in Chattatooga, uh, Tennessee was one of the most famous ones, in which there was like a large trial. There were hundreds of pages of testimony about Coca-Cola. Um, and first was the dangerous amounts of caffeine that it was alleged to have and how caffeine was so dangerous. Um, and then later, the last ditch attempt, if I remember correctly, of Wiley, was he claimed that it was consumer fraud because Coca-Cola no longer contained coca or cocaine, and therefore it was using you know, false advertising. Uh, but it does contain coca leaf. It's just decoconized coca leaf. Anyway, Coca-Cola actually, maybe they had the better lawyers, but they won both of those cases. And from that moment on, it had a kind of uninterrupted um, success story as an American commodity, at least until the 1980s when they tried the thing with New Coke, um, which also <laughs> comes into this story. Um, but it had an uninterrupted growth. It became part of the military apparatus. It was exported abroad to, as a symbol of Americanization. But these kind of early roots in late 19th century drug cultures 
and specifically in French and specifically in Peruvian drug cultures, has been almost entirely erased from what is the commodity of Coca-Cola today. Now, talk to us about how the Coca-Cola company collaborated with the United States government in bringing down cocaine. Yeah, you know, that's actually a really interesting story, too. I found these archives in um, in um, the National Archives is something that you had to... Now they're com- more commonly used than when I started looking at them 20, 25 years ago. Uh, but they had these little... They were the DEA archives, formerly DEA. So it was the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and its predecessors. And they had this category that was just filled with documents that was called beverages. And it was all about the way in which the federal government, through this new anti-drug agency called, well, it had many, many names through its career, but was most commonly known as the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, how they would regulate the beverage trade in the United States. Because at the beginning of the 20th century, a lot of beverages had drugs in them, (laughs) soft drinks. Well, they weren't, it wasn't a soft drink if it had the drugs, but it was, you know, it was a hard drink. Um, well, it was a soft drink because it didn't have alcohol, but a lot of them had opiates in them and a lot of them had cocaine. So Coca-Cola was not the only one. I found a list once and I think there were 112 original drinks that had um, some form of coca or cocaine in them. This was a very popular idea. And they some of them had crazy names. One was called Dope. Um, one was called Dopa-Cola. Um, so, you know, they, they really were reaching out to their constituency. People knew why they were buying these drinks. So we had so, tens or hundreds of thousands of people running around high all the time. Well, they at least when they were drinking these drinks, yeah. Um, so it was a kind of a chaotic uh, period. But very quickly it comes under control in the United States after the the Harrison Act and the setting up of these bureaucracies within the Treasury Department. And the main way that they worked, and this is where I would, rather than a conspiracy, it's it's just a typical kind of corporate collaboration with the state, is Coca-Cola began to take a major role in policing the market for Coca in the United States. Now, um, it really had wide-ranging implications because they weren't just talking about Coca-Cola operations in the United States where they would do industrial espionage and work with the Treasury Department and trying to figure out if there were any people who were breaking the law about the use of coca or cocaine. But they also were in Peru because in Peru they were buyers of coca leaf and they had this monopoly relationship to buy the coca leaf, the special coca leaf that would be used in their their secret ingredient, which was called merchandise number five. And merchandise number five with the special decoconized um, uh, syrup that gives Coca-Cola, you know, a certain flavor and a certain je ne sais quoi. I don't, I don't know what it does. It, it gives it a good flavor. I prefer it to Pepsi. I'll, I'll tell you if I ever drink, which is rarely, um, <laughs> it's the coca that gives it the taste. Um, so th- this collaboration went on for 40, 50 years, very close collaboration between this growing, small, new federal anti-drug bureaucracy and the Coca-Cola company. 
there was only one other company that had a relationship like that, and that was Merck of New Jersey. So the way that coca became regulated in reality was not through the enforcement of prohibition or through laws in the United States or through policing in the United States. Not a lot of people were arrested as for being cocaine users after 1920 in the United States. The supply was dried up by this kind of corporate compact between the Coca-Cola company, Merck of New Jersey, and the federal government. They controlled all the imports. They watched over it. They regulated it. They reported it to the League of Nations and later to the United Nations. So they had a great deal of power, regulatory power, and it seemed to work for quite a while, um, including their uh, their ability to knock off any competitors, of course, which is the whole purpose of having a monopoly. So anytime that any errant old New Jersey pharmacist or St. Louis pharmacist said, I want to start up a, 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 a coca a drink of my own, they always came down very hard on them. <laughs> and they denied them the ability to do that. They, uh, The government sued them, harassed them and, and whatnot. So um, the, it was a interesting way of regulating the market in the United States and was one of the reasons why Coca-Cola created this kind of monopoly uh, position in the United States as a, uh, you know, as a leading uh, cola soft drink. I mean, Pepsi-Cola was always there a little bit behind, never had coca in it, and began to take off again in the 1930s. Um, but uh, uh, not until the 1970s or 80s did it have the same visibility as Coca-Cola. What more do you want to tell us about the 30 to 35 year decline in Peruvian uh, cocaine before we go into phase three? Yeah, there's there's an important set of developments globally during this period, because until 1910 or so, coca and cocaine are almost exclusively an Andean phenomena. But something steps in to totally disrupt that world, and that is imperialism. And what I mean by imperialism is the colonial powers of Europe and Asia um, trying to promote their own product lines and trying to promote their own um, uh, plantations and pharmaceutical companies and whatnot. And one of the products that gets involved in these imperial politics, in, especially in the interwar period between World War I and World War II, is cocaine. Okay. And I'll try to make a very short version of this, but um, there were three or four imperial powers that began to experiment with growing coca and creating cocaine industries that would be under colonial auspices. The British gave up quickly after a while, the French and the Germans also, but two powers really disrupted the global market in coca and cocaine. And the first of these were the Dutch, the Dutch had very advanced pharmaceutical um, facilities in Amsterdam and other cities, very advanced pharmaceutical sciences related to Germanic pharmaceutical sciences. And they also had these tropical colonies in Java and Sumatra. And these colonies were able, they were able to use kind of colonial economics to create large scale plantations and they grew all kinds of colonial crops there, including um, um, cinchona was another great success story for them. And oil palm was another great success story for them in Southeast Asia. But one of the 
great unknowns was the boom in Dutch um, colonial cocaine. And it begins about 1910 and it ends by the 1940s, but it just takes over the world markets because they had this kind of state colonialist nexus and they had extremely efficient plantations and they just happened to have a very, very high um, cocaine content um, set uh, of coca um, uh, plantings in uh, Southeast Asia. Um, whether or not that was by design, people are still debating that, or whether or not it was just by luck. So it was a wildly more efficient industry than um, the Peruvian German or Peruvian North American connection. And so by the 1920s, about 80% of the world's supply of cocaine is coming from this Southeast Asia, Amsterdam. It was one factory, the Netherlands Cocaine Factory, sitting in the middle of Amsterdam that produced all the cocaine that was distributed throughout Europe and through much of the world. So very quickly, rises like that. For reasons that we don't need to get into now, the Dutch decided to disinvest themselves of cocaine as well in the 1930s and 1940s. In the 1940s, World War II comes in and the coca plantations are destroyed and the United States occupies those islands. And again, the United States has this special interest in putting down cocaine and they say no more cocaine, no more coca in Asia for you. Um, now, the other power that's really interesting in this regard is Japan. Japan is a non-European modernizer. Pharmaceutical industries are quite important in the substitution of industries. That is the sort of imperial dream. They have tropical colonies. Formosa, which is today called Taiwan, was the major one, but lots of other ones, Okinawa and other ones. And so Japanese industrialists began to also plant um, coca and Japanese pharmaceutical firms began to produce a good deal of cocaine. And they did the same thing with morphine and, and heroin as well, which is a, a story that got them into a lot of global infamy by World War II because of the charge of being a narcotics empire, particularly against the Chinese or in Manchuka, their, their puppet colony in um, Man, what we call Manchuria today. Um, Anyway, what, the most interesting thing about the Japanese, to me at least as a, as, a, as a researcher, about the Japanese cocaine chain is that it was transnational. They went to Peru. They bought huge properties down in the Wyaga Valley where they got coca, but they've got a lot of know-how about this drug from their Peruvian connection. And that Peruvian connection was thriving in the 1920s and 1930s until, in, like many other things, the coming of World War II, it was nationalized and xenophobic movements came up and that was cut off. Um, and the Japanese cocaine industry, along with the morphine and um, uh, heroin industry, is also destroyed by World War II and U.S. occupation of Japan. So in the aftermath of World War II, and this is an important geopolitical fact, and might lead you to your next question. The world of cocaine has kind of been transformed. The German pharmaceutical industry has been destroyed and put under US and allied occupation, being heavily regulated. The Japanese pharmaceutical industry has been restructured and destroyed. The Dutch are long out of this. And so the only place in the world where they're still making any perceptible amount of cocaine 
is back in the Eastern Andes where it had all begun in these kind of backwards little workshops of Eastern Peru. And the amount of cocaine being marketed from there after World War II is, is actually pretty pathetic. I mean, we're talking about under a thousand kilos a year. It had become an insignificant medicinal good for a number of reasons, not only the perceived danger of it, but there were so many substitutes for cocaine. There were, it really wasn't needed in the majority of surgeries that it was before. All the, all the different varieties of canes, Novocaine and Pera, are just direct artificial substitutes of, of cocaine. So it becomes the last refuge of the know-how and the culture of growing coca and the culture of creating coca paste and cocaine in the world for this period, the 10 years after World War II. So we're about to go into phase three, but before we do, tell us the Mm -hmm. reason that you take issue with the government that categorizes cocaine as a narcotic. Well, cocaine is not a narcotic. Cocaine has different products, uh, different characteristics altogether. It's a stimulant. Right. It's much more... um, it's much more like um, an amphetamine or much more like Ritalin, um, which is a pharmaceutical amphetamine. Um, it's, it's, it has those characteristics. I, I don't want to get into the science of, of course. it, but, you know, whether it, you know, dopamine uptake, dopamine blockage, blah, blah, but it, it is not a narcotic and that's a misnomer. But by the end of World War II, the situation with drug control had moved so much further beyond the original obsession with narcotics, that the UN drug regime was going to have to deal with a much, much wider variety of, of you know, illicit or um, uh, controllable drugs. Yeah. One comment on Ritalin. You know, I treated about uh, my end that I published was uh, 1,500 uh, chemically dependent people. Uh, the very vast majority of them were uh, dependent on cocaine. And it was noticeable how many of them had taken Ritalin as a child. Oh, well, that's interesting because I don't know whether you've seen um, this research or not. It's it's probably fairly well known in your field. But um, uh, who's the, there's a pharmacologist who published this book called The Cult of Pharmacology, de Grand Pre. And one of his first findings in that as a pharmacologist is that in the workings of the brain, the way that drugs, I think it's called pharmacokinetics, how a drug behaves within your brain, um, Ritalin is completely indistinguishable from cocaine. Mm -hmm. Ritalin basically becomes cocaine in the brain. And that explains why there was this phenomenon in the 1990s of school principals and teachers who were breaking into like lockers of Ritalin and selling it on the street. Because if you snort Ritalin, basically you've got cocaine. Um, Anyway. um, Phase three. Well, phase three um, is the part of the book that um, may interest readers the most, but the part of the book that's most sparsely laid out as well, in part because um, the book was already too long, <laughs> but in part, in part because it really is much more difficult to study something that becomes illicit than something that's an illicit 
that's a licit commodity that you can read about in medical journals and you can put together the evidence from, you know, public debates or you can, um, there, so the, the sources become much more un, more untrustworthy, especially the, the numbers that are involved or the people that are involved because many of the people, whether they be policing agents or whether they be smugglers or whether they be peasants who are making um, the drug on the ground, they're, they're actually trying to be invisible now. Um, so what happens, and I think one of the themes of the book at this point, and it wasn't one that I tried to concoct on purpose, is that the U.S., which leads the global movement to completely ban cocaine after World War II, there were still spaces for cocaine. It was still being traded on open markets. It was still had producers who were legal in the Andes. Um, but the U.S. moves very quickly after World War II to try to take advantage of its position of power to make sure that the global drug regime is seamless. And it's not just about cocaine. It's about other drugs as well. But in cocaine's case, you know, it was highly local. It was like in our backyard. It was in the Andes. So it, it could take a certain special focus. And I guess one of the contentions that I try to illustrate in the book, is that this effort by the United States to, to constrict the last spaces of regulated or legal cocaine by criminalizing it and sending police in after it and codifying it as an illicit drug at all stages in the US, UN 1961 Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs backfires. And it backfires terribly because in 1946, 1947, 1948, there was almost no illicit cocaine in the world. The only illicit cocaine that existed, and there are lots of stories about it because people love to tell stories about cocaine parties and cocaine use. It's very colorful. Was the cocaine that was smuggled out of pharmacies or old depots of military drugs from the Germans. It was always pharmaceutical grade cocaine from, particularly from Merck, but from some Japanese companies or, it was always that type of smuggling. It came through legal production that was being diverted. And so there wasn't a lot of it. It wasn't self-perpetuating. It wasn't creating a commodity chain of illicit cocaine. It was just leakage as it were for parties, particularly in ports around the world, or sailors or prostitution rings. Cocaine was, fair, or jazz musicians in the United States, they had, a, they had an early culture of using cocaine and heroin, of course, very heavily in the 1940s and 1950s as well. Um, but the United States effort to clamp down on what's going on in Peru, which was the only legal producer at this time, backfires because it almost immediately means that the some of the last entrepreneurs of this old cocaine industry say well what the hell if if there if this is illegal now why don't we just start selling it under the counter why don't we just start our own little factories here and there and slowly but surely in response to the, almost this cat and mouse way an illicit cocaine 
industry begins in the Andes, and it's visible by 1950. First, it begins in Peru, and then there's a clamp down there, and so it spreads almost immediately to Bolivia. And Bolivia is a much better incubating environment because the state has collapsed in the Bolivian Revolution. There's a lot of coca growing in the country. It gets smuggled out through particularly Chile, but also Argentina. Um, by the late 1950s, Cuba has emerged as this major entrepot point. And Cuba is, you know, has this legend of the 1950s being corrupt, but also being this tourist haven of the Americas, not just, you know, don't forget, it wasn't just rich Americans who vacationed in Cuba and went to the casinos and clubs and and frequented prostitutes and used, you know, rum, loved the music, but they also were taste testing cocaine. Um, and there was a lot of cocaine emerging in Cuba in the late 1950s. Coming from these routes, these illicit routes coming out of the Andes, oftentimes through Chile, other times through Argentina and Brazil. Now, you may have noticed one country that is really absent from this map that I'm pointing out, and it's the one that we associate the most with cocaine today. Colombia. Colombia. Colombia was not a producer of cocaine. Colombia had very little coca culture, only a few indigenous groups, very small, isolated groups used coca leaf in the country. Um, the country is predominantly non-indigenous, and it never had a culture of making industrial cocaine. So it had to be, it had to come from somewhere. And what I've pinpointed the most important movement pushing the Colombian cocaine industry into high gear is the turning point is a very important turning point in the Cold War. And the Cold War had a lot to do with cocaine generally. First of all, when the Cuban Revolution comes into power in 1959, one of the first things that Fidel Castro does is he expels this cocaine or just the general gangster class in the country. They, he considers them to be corrupt. He considers them to be imperialists. Um, he considers them to be the arch enemy of the Cuban people. So he expels these cocaine capitalists or other capitalists. And what does that do? Well, a lot of them were really learning to be international cocaine traffickers, and being expelled makes them into a professional, internationalized cocaine class. They go to Argentina, they go to Brazil, they go to Mexico, they go to Guatemala, few go to Colombia, and they also go to Miami, <laughs> which is associated with Cuban exiles. So you can see the spread of the cocaine class um, people who were invested in the idea that there's a lot of money to be made in the marketing of this drug clandestinely. And so it continues to spread like wildfire in the early 1960s. And throughout the 1960s, cocaine is suddenly you know, popping up here and there. The United States government is trying to be hush-hush about it. They're convening secret meetings of the UN, of policing forces across Latin America, but they don't want to alarm people that there's this new drug crisis emerging. So they kind of keep it quiet. But the turning point is the early 1970s. And the main geopolitical event in that is the fall of Allende in Chile. Uh, because General Pinochet, who's otherwise known for, you know, just being, um, you know, a right-wing dictatorial, um, 
you know, militarist sadist. Uh, <laughs> um, he, one of his first acts coming in in September in, of 1973 is to chase out, much like Fidel Castro did, the cocaine entrepreneurial dealing class in Chile, which was mainly controlled in the north of Chile by groups of, of what we would call um, Arab Americans or uh, Turcos, as they're called in Latin America. And where did many of these people go? Many of these people who survived went to Colombia. They went to Colombia because it was clear the market for cocaine was to the north. And so what they were going to do was be in the geopolitical position. And so there's a lot of stories about the Chilean connection has ended, the Colombian connection begins. And so from 1973 to 1978, is a vast boom in what would later be called the Colombian cartels. And the amount of cocaine being funneled through Colombia, they're still not growing the coca leaf. It's still coming from Bolivia and the Wayaga Valley of Peru. They're shipping it up in cars and then small airplanes. They're processing it in places like Bogota and Medellin and Cali and Leticia and places like that. And they're becoming experts at marketing it um, in the United States in particular through Miami and through New York at first. And then by the end of the 1970s, you know, across California and other parts of the United States. So the Colombians really come to the fore during the 1970s, and by the 1980s, they dominate the global market for cocaine. But it's an almost entirely new and invented entrepreneurial role for an illicit class in Colombia, although there are many reasons why Colombia was susceptible to this kind of criminalized activity. So when we compare Peru in its heyday in the 19th century, before mm -hmm. phase two that you call the decline, when it was doing yeah. really well, and you said it had a monopoly on world cocaine production, yeah. how, how, how does that compare to how Peru is doing now in phase three? the illicit worldwide production. Well, I prefer to look at it this way. If you look at the, if you try to make these guesstimates as to what the amount of cocaine that's on the world market, I like round numbers just like the DEA does. So I tried to make round numbers that make sense to people. At the high point of the legal Peruvian cocaine industry, they were exporting about 10 metric tons of cocaine abroad. And that was considered to be a successful industry. That was a boom. After World War II, when the global cocaine industry has been really deeply disarticulated, and there's really no market for the drug, we're talking about less than 500 kilos that are being exported at the last gasp of the legal cocaine industry. Minuscule amount. I mean, that's confiscated at, you know, Miami-Dade Airport every day uh, or along the Mexico-U.S. border every day. So it, was, it had really declined. Then it starts on the up-ramp again as an illicit drug. So there were some estimates that by 1970, there could have been like 10 kilos. Again, 10, 10, 10 
10,000, no, 100 kilos of cocaine by 1970 that are being produced in the global market. By 1970, the Colombians have amped this up to um, 1,000 kilos of cocaine that they're marketing all around the world, um, which is a figure that continues to grow upward, upward, upward to about 2,000 levels off. We're actually, again, so we're talking about 100 times the amount of cocaine in the global market that ever existed when it was a legal drug. We're talking about a huge multiplier effect of the illicit stimulus of prohibition and the illicit allures of cocaine as a recreational drug. Um, at the moment, we happen to be going through another high point or boom in the global cocaine market. Um, there's over 20,000 tons of cocaine being marketed globally today in the world. Almost all of that is from southern Colombia. Not all of it, but about 80% of it. The other 20% from southern Peru and part of it from Bolivia. Probably the next country in line to be producing massive amounts of cocaine is Venezuela, which has been a um, long time gestating in this role. But um, it the, the policies of repression, uh, the policies of restriction over the long, long run have been completely counterproductive. The amounts of cocaine being used globally have never decreased. They just keep on coming. We're coming to the end of our interview, and I'm going to read something from your book to end the interview, something I've never done before, by the way. But before, right. <laughs> but before, before I surprise you and do, is there anything you want to add to the story? I think that was a pretty good ending you well, just came to. Well, um, I mean, there is a cautionary tale in here, but the main purpose of the book was the one of defining better this field of academic drug history. I am a historian. We do prodigious amounts of archival research. We like to make new discoveries. We like to connect them with new paradigms and new interpretations. And the main one of this was to take a very long-term view of a single drug and also a very global view of the drug and put these perspectives together. And there are now uh, a number of very good books that do the, th the same thing for other drugs and drug history is becoming a very um, respected field. Um, I, I'm part of that movement. I have many fine colleagues who I respect. And um, uh, it's really been a great thing being part of this movement of putting drugs back into history. Is there a book on psychedelics that you would refer us to? Oh my God, there's a boom going on in, in writing about psychedelics. Well, one of the most interesting recent books about psychedelics um, that takes the same tactic is, is Mike Jay's Mescaline, A Global History. I don't know if you've seen that. I've interviewed really Mike Jay on this program, Paul. <laughs> okay. I've never met him, but I was really intrigued by that. Yes. He seemed to be... Um, taking up my more academic challenge. Very much so. it in a much more 
popular way, but the book is very, very good. Yes. But there are a number of books like that. Um, there's a new book on cannabis that's called Cannabis Global Histories, edited by James Mills and Lucas Richard. Uh, there's a new book coming out about global psychedelics. So the idea of global drug histories is really um, coming to fruition now. Well, you took a long view. You took 10 years to write the book. That's a long period of time to write it. I, I, I really. Well, you have to remember, I did that. It came out 15 years ago. So you're really jogging my memory. <laughs> <laughs> so as I said, I'm going to end our interview with, with reading from your book. This is at the very end. Ironically, the aim of American drug policy since 1914, which has been to cut drugs off at the source, has produced a paradox dramatically revealed in the history of cocaine. Since the late 1940s, repression against incipient cocaine in the Andes has only backfired, fostering by the early 1970s its opposite, a true and aggressive cocaine epidemic. Or, to invoke another Mertonism, Mertonism actually, drug policy as a self-fulfilling prophecy. Its main impact since the 1980s has been to balloon and scatter illicit production and smuggling to new sites now concentrated in southeastern Colombia and contribute to the wealth and tactical sophistication of drug traffickers and to the moral and political decay of the Andean states. The U.S. drug war has brought the street price of the drug to record lows, the precise opposite of its stated central aim, and has pushed drug abuse to new and perilous directions, such as domestic methamphetamine. It has spawned horrifying violence and human rights degradations at home and abroad, and is now globalizing cocaine culture to such disparate places as Russia and Brazil. What is largely forgotten in this ongoing mayhem and about the unyielding prohibitionist system behind it is the longer entanglement between the United States and the Andes around cocaine that, through a sinuous course, has led to this disastrous warring relationship with the Andean commodity of cocaine. Like other destructive relationships, it seems driven by passions and detritus of the past. Perhaps any light this book has shed on that long relationship may someday help to heal it. Thank you, Paul Gutenberg. I very much appreciate your being with us today. Well, I couldn't have said that better myself at the end, but uh, <laughs> it's been a pleasure to be on your program.